First of all, it was challenging for leadership, right? Because I I reported into uh, individual reported into the CFO, and and a lot of these gentlemen and, and ladies they, they never really traveled outside of uh, the, the U.S. besides Europe and, and a few countries in Asia. Now we're dealing with countries that are I like to call it the Wild West, but I guess that was Frank Orlowski. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report. In this episode, I visit with Frank, a longtime compliance professional who worked in emerging markets for FISA, Pfizer, and has some great stories and tales and cautionary tales for the compliance professional about working in emerging markets and working with different cultures. I know you'll enjoy this episode. As we move into 2024, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, if you have and you have any questions, please contact me. I can help. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I'm thrilled to have with me today Frank Orlowski. Frank, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Could you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your academic and professional background? Sure, yeah. I grew up in North Jersey and went to school in in Providence, Rhode Island, and majored in accounting. My first job right out of school was at Arthur Anderson, and my first client was this large company down in New York, which originally sounded like a toilet bowl maker, but it was actually Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. And I jumped ship after six months and joined Pfizer, where they put me financially and operationally in charge of this area called All Other. And this was in the heyday of Pfizer when Viagra just got released and Lipitor and Norvask were, were rolling and All Other became emerging markets. So it was South America, Middle East, Asia and Eastern Europe where the dollars might have been small, but we had a lot of challenges with compliance and controls and meeting U.S. standards when it came to accounting regulation. I helped grow those markets for 25 years. I ended up being in 35 countries, including China and Japan and Australia. Don't ask me why they put Japan and Australia in emerging markets, but that's the way Pfizer's construct was. I guess they figured if you're going to fly 12 hours, you can manage those two countries. And then when my years of age of service reached a certain number, I was able to to retire from Pfizer. My wife would not let me sit home on the couch in my, my mid-40s, so I started Asian Advisory Group, where I leveraged my market access experience and help companies to commercialize products mainly in life science, but pretty much anything that relates to development, manufacturing, distribution, and sales. So the uh, it sounded like Pfizer had a very uh, U.S.-centric approach with many companies, the U.S. and the rest of the world, although you characterize them as emerging markets. Uh, If that's a fair characterization, what was it like to, to work in those emerging markets, recognizing that you were here, but you're going to have to travel a whole lot of the time? That's a great question, Tom. I, first of all, it was challenging for leadership, right? Because I I reported into uh, individual reported into the CFO, and and a lot of these gentlemen and and ladies they they never really traveled outside of uh, the the U.S. besides Europe and and a few countries in Asia. Now we're dealing with countries that are I like to call it the Wild West, but I guess you could say it was the Wild West, right? There were different regulations, different ways of operating, different cultures, different time zones. It was challenging managing a team where they were asleep while you were awake and and vice versa. And you're spending most of the time on the telephone, which required a lot of trust. But it also required a lot of challenges in teaching the senior leaders in Pfizer about these countries. For example, inflation. 
recently we have inflation in the U.S., but before that, I can't remember a time where we had inflation, maybe back in the Jimmy Carter days with the oil crisis. But a lot of these countries, that's mainstream for them, right? And the geopolitical issues are much different than we have in the U.S. And that was something that required a lot of learning to my to the leaders that I supported at Pfizer. In terms of learning, I'm often intrigued in the compliance realm or even uh, internal audit realm that in many ways uh, we have to persuade. And I don't want to say cajole, but Uh, I've been in the legal department where we did have some hammers we could bring down. But compliance and internal audit typically have to persuade and they have to get buy-in from whether it's division, business unit, geo-region, all the way up to top leadership. Was that your experience as well? Absolutely, Tom. And what's interesting about compliance and controls is that, look, we have to follow U.S. regulations. We are a U.S. company, okay? Pfizer was. And they have to follow strict standards, which include Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and following SEC and DOJ regulations. But, Tom, the word bribe is not a bad word in the rest of the world or a lot of the world, right? If you don't provide a gift as part of doing business, you will have a challenge, right? So there were some real issues when we dealt with certain countries where we couldn't bribe because of the fact that we're a U.S. company, but it it really was a disadvantage and we had to get really creative. But let me just say one thing. Sometimes I feel like we talk on both sides of our mouth. I live in New York City in Manhattan, and guess what? If I don't give my super X amount in Christmas or the doorman X amount or the guy that parks my car Y amount, what do you think is going to happen? So I know we have this culture of not bribing. You can call that a gift. You can call it what you want. But it, it certainly is something that, that I think is unique to, to living in the United States. Yeah, I'm going to have to stop you right there because I do not see that in any way, shape or form as a bribe. And indeed, I will tell you the story. My grandfather taught me when I was seven at Christmas, before Christmas, I noticed he would always stand outside and wait for the trash guys. And he would give them five bucks. And I said, Granddad, what are you doing? He said, I just want to thank him for a job well done. And he got the best trash pickup on the street. All right, there you go. (laughs) I learned that uh, too. And to this day, on Christmas, I'm out there flagging the guys down. Let me give you 20 bucks just to say thanks. But but Um, what would happen if you didn't do that? I'm just curious. I'd get the same service as everyone else. Ah, there you go. Okay. Okay. But I see nothing wrong, at least commercially, for saying thank you. But what I'm intrigued by, though, I didn't mean to chastise you, but you're absolutely right. Overseas, a gift is seen as almost a statement of honor or a statement of perhaps respect. And in many ways, we don't see it as a statement of respect. We, We may see it as, I said, a job well done and a thank you. But it's a much more of a commercial right. event. And the challenge, the cultural challenge can be great. So how did you navigate the rules under things like the FCPA with a really cultural challenge, particularly in the Far East or Asia Pac, where it's a show of respect you to give a gift? Absolutely. You are absolutely right. And it allows you to have a breakthrough moment, right? Because if you don't have that breakthrough moment, it it could be difficult. So what we would do is we would generally give a gift or a sign of respect that had the Pfizer logo on it, right? So it would be something like a plaque or honoring somebody or something that, that honors the blue oval of Pfizer. And the rules are vague, but I will say this, Tom, the FCPA, as of August, they came out with a ruling 
that that was from a child adoption agency in Washington, D.C., where they said that certain things you can provide the honorable gift giving if it's within a reasonable amount of money, which they're not defining what reasonable is. But we would use the some a gift that had the Pfizer logo on it, which then per, was not perceived as a bribe, so to speak, or gaining influence. Shout out for calling out the 2023 opinion release. But the rules we went by when I was in the corporate world were, one, you're absolutely right, didn't have the logo on it, but two, could you give it to them in front of their coworkers? So we were big on everyone has to know he's received or she's received this, and we're going to sh- show everyone what they got, whether it might be a plaque, whether it might be a, a golf club with a logo on it, certainly a shirt or a hat. But we found that uh, transparency was another indicia to the government that this was made in good faith. Those rules have been around, and I think the one thing that DOJ communicates to me is never stop talking about the rules. Hey, you are 100% right. Because 100%. as recent as August 2023, the DOJ is issuing an opinion release on it. So they obviously uh, felt the need to re- re-talk about those or restate those. Um, but that's certainly one avenue you could take. And I guess the only rule we had was no cash. Never. Correct. Correct. You could, you could have a dinner, you could have a function or a party. We have done gift certificates, right? But but beyond that, there's absolutely no no cash. Tom, I'm going to flip it around on you. And, and as a compliance person, I'm curious how you, handle, you would handle this situation. And I'll tell you how Pfizer handled it. We built a plant in China. And as a, a gift from that region in China, they all of a sudden in the parking lot was an Audi A4. And it, it was a thank you gift from the region of that government to say thank you for building that factory in that region. So obviously I got a phone call. I quickly, like you said about communication, raised it up the, the, the chain, say we got this A4 in the parking lot. And much the same as giving a gift, if you don't receive a gift properly, it could also be a sign of respect. So there was all kinds of debate and challenges of what do we do to this Audi A4? We can't necessarily give it back, but we can't accept it. So we actually contacted the SEC and we DOJ and others, and we decided to use that car for employee transportation, to pick somebody up at the airport, to drop off. So it became part of the operations of the plant, how we used it. I'm curious what your feedback is if we handled it the right way. No, I think actually what I was thinking about is giving it to every employee of the month for 30-day use. I like that I, idea. I should share I that think with your, you. I think your actually solution is better because even with my solution, someone is getting a very valuable benefit for that period of time, and I'm sure that exceeded the gift value uh, oh, yeah. for Pfizer employees. But by making it a, a community, a communal, a plant, a facility – perk. I think that's actually a great way to handle that. And that way everybody gets to use it. And if it's, uh, I bought my wife an A4 one, so I know how cool they are. Oh, and it, it, it might even be that you rotate the drivers to go pick people up. If So everyone gets the experience of, of driving an A4 because they're very nice cars. Yeah, but I love the way you guys handle that. Thank you. Thank you. And I love the way you said about constantly communicating with the DOJ. We would do Besides doing yearly certification programs for FCPA and compliance, which is more computer-based, 
we would do a lot of trainings and workshops. So we would try to make it, quote unquote, fun, where within each market, when we would go, we would have a case study. We would develop a unique case study saying, here is a situation where you may be being offered a gift. There may be something where you're providing undue influence. How do you handle it? And it got the team engaged. It it didn't take up the whole visit, right? But if we had a a three-day visit, four hours of it was dated related to compliance and, and FCPA regulation, just to keep that constant reminder. Tom, we even leveraged the New York City MTA uh, slogan, if you see something, say something, uh, which is during 9-11, that was a big deal with, with the terrorism and whatnot. And so we adopted that logo just so that people were, hey, if you, if you see something, just say it and we'll evaluate it. So the uh, let me ask you your experience on this, because I've also trained in multiple emerging markets where there was a perception of corruption, yes. whether that be South America, whether it be certain countries in Europe or the, the usual places. And what I found was when I trained the rank and file employees, they were almost always just fed up with having to pay bribes. And I remember in Italy, I was training there once, and uh, I noticed when I started talking about it and the training was on how to avoid paying a bribe. And they were talking among themselves. And one guy said, oh, you mean Greece? Yeah, (laughs) we know what that is. We hate it. And then the conversation began all the times they'd been shaken down, basically, by a police officer, government official, or you name the person. And what I really learned from that is, yeah, there may be a perception of corruption here, but the people in this plant they're sick of it, and they don't want to be a part of it. And I found that to be particularly true in South America as well, and that they really wanted to make a change. And if you could convince them that management really meant what they said and that the top guys wouldn't be engaging in this type of behavior, they would follow as well, or at least they would report when they were approached. What about your experience in that arena? I, I can't agree with you more. It was, it was fed up and embarrassed. Right. That, that they had to constantly. And I would even move it towards Southeast Asia. I'll give you an example. In Indonesia, we were we landed in the plane. We were flying you know, normal commercial and it was a group of five of us. And the, the country manager of Indonesia picked us up. And sure enough, we got pulled over by a police officer. And instead of getting a fine, he paid an amount. Right. And because that's just what you do. And he was very reluctant and very embarrassed to do that. And of course, the police officer said, I'll give you an escort wherever you're going, because I don't know whatever he paid. But we then talked about it. And he said exactly what you said. This is embarrassing. I'm sick of it. I'm so sorry I had to do this. I hope things can change. And you're absolutely right. I saw that, too, in, in Latin America, especially in Venezuela where we had instances going into the airport where we had to pay a tax that nobody else seemed to have to pay because they looked at us and said, okay, you can afford that tax or, or whatnot because you seem to have an entourage around you or whatnot. And there again was a, oh, we're so tired of this and we apologize. I was pulled over by a policeman. I was with my business unit president in China and he was a fairly crusty old fella and he just went nuts and he just said no. I'm not paying anything, period, nothing. Now, they couldn't speak English, so we had a big language barrier. It's clear what they wanted. And he just plopped his tail on the ground and said, we'll sit right here. What? If I miss my plane, so be it. And we sat there for a couple hours. Now, they never 
unsheathed their guns. I never felt physically threatened, right. nervous, and eventually they just left. I love that. Uh, I think that's a great, yeah, great way to handle it. I wish they did that in Indonesia, but I think it was one of those things we landed after a 16-hour flight that we just want to get to the airport. But So let me ask you how you might handle this, because this happened to me the first week was a CCO at a oilfield service, or was a general counsel, rather, at an oilfield service company, general counsel CCO. Um, a guy comes in, he just come back from, I think it was Equatorial Guinea. And while leaving the country, he gets pulled in and they say, we just looked at your shot card and you were incorrectly let into this country because you don't have your yellow fever vaccine. (laughs) So we're going to give you one before you go back to America. In fact, we happen to have it right here. And they open a drawer, a little syringe with the unknown liquid in it. And he gave him all the cash he had, which was $87. And we were under uh, a DPA at that time. So I knew we were going to have to report this. And I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write, not type, write in four sentences what happened to you. And I want you to attach it. And I want you to handwrite an expense receipt. And I want you to attach it to your overall reimbursement request for this trip. And we're going to send it up and you're going to get reimbursed for that. And we were under a monitor. I knew it was going to be reviewed by the monitor. And the monitor called me. He said, you handled this exactly right. This is exactly what I want to see, which is this extortion happened. And wasn't a bribe. It was extortion. But you documented it. And he said, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking to put people in danger. What we're looking for is documentation when it does happen. And document. I totally agree with you. I think you handled that perfectly. So tell me about uh, what you're up to now, Frank. Sure, yeah. So now with uh, it's interesting going from a large corporation to my own single Asian advisory group, and it's a different dynamic. I work with consultants a lot at Pfizer. So to me, I know what is a good consultant and what is a bad consultant. My pet peeve is when we would hire these large firms. I, I won't name them, but it was like I give them information and fancy PowerPoints got regurgitated back to me. So that's not the consultant I wanted to be. But right now I'm helping companies. For example, a company has a phase three product and are getting ready to commercialize and they're looking for a manufacturing partner and they're looking all over the world and they want to know a SWOT analysis of, is it okay to do it in India? What are the advantages, disadvantages, risks, and threats versus a Europe? And to me, it would, it, pharmaceutical manufacturing, there are three things and it's a circle. It's not a triangle. It's cost, service reliability, and quality. All those things are equally important. And I'm serving a lot of clients right now where I'm trying to reinforce that and help them to improve each of those areas in their service offering for manufacturing. I'm also finding MedTech is also expanding. Sorry, Tom, I don't mean to keep rambling on, but MedTech is another area of life science that's expanding considerably. And I have a lot of clients in, in that space as well that need help commercializing. So what is service reliability in the pharmaceutical industry? It's a great question. Avoid back orders. So it's one thing to get a back order on something you order on Amazon, like a TV. Oh, you can't watch TV. But if there's a chemotherapy specialized drug that there's a back order on, that means the medicine is not getting to the patient. 
So service reliability means is that at any given point in time, if a doctor, prescriber, or patient around the world needs a medication, and it happens to be a Pfizer medication, that they can get that within a certain period of time. If there's a back order, then that's a real problem. They can't get that medicine. That may save their life. Can I contrast that with perhaps med tech, which might look more towards an overall service response if you have a problem with the technology in a a service response level or uh, something along that line? Would that be uh, fair? Absolutely. Yeah. MedTech is exactly what, what you said, monitoring that, but it's also an add-on to a, a therapy. So for example, it might be a software that goes beyond what an EpiPen does for somebody that has a peanut allergy. And that MedTech software could detect if a certain food has peanuts in it, or you could look it up online on your phone if you have that software that says, okay, this coffee or this juice may have a derivative of X, Y, and Z. Be careful. So I look at MedTech as an extension of the traditional life science offerings that that, that you see. Did you ever live uh, for more than six months out of the United States? Yes, I did. So I lived in Puerto Rico, Back in the 90s, the heyday when there was a tax optimization and everything was hunky-dory there. And then I lived in England for a year. I lived in Canterbury at the Pfizer facility, which actually produced, invented Viagra, believe it or not, and then produced the, the active ingredient. We implemented a financial system there. So I spent a lot of time uh, a year there. But other than that, just like you, Tom, I traveled all over the world to 35 markets. I was on the road for two weeks uh, a month. And uh, you can't just go one place when you're dealing with emerging markets. You go to South America, if you just go to Brazil, you're, you're really you're not doing yourself a service by not going to Venezuela or other markets. Same thing with Asia and the Middle East. So I feel like even though I haven't lived in those locations, I spent a lot of time on a plane traveling to them. In, I think it was September of 2014, I read a document called COSO Framework for Internal Controls. And I said, who wrote this? This is compliance. Why didn't I know about this? It was, it was like I had my Damascene moment where the shells or scales fell from my eyes and I saw <laughs> internal controls as the key element of every compliance program. And it really was revelatory for me because anytime anyone before that asked me, we want to talk to you about internal controls. I always said, Oh, I'm a lawyer. I do cool stuff. Go see those people. I'm not one of them. And it really was. And so I became a huge advocate of that. And indeed started speaking extensively about internal controls. And I always was interested in the reactions because about a third of the people were like you, and they were going, yeah, dig it. And the lawyers, 30 to 60 seconds in, had their eyes rolling inside their heads. How do you communicate to the lawyer, or at least the legally trained compliance professional, that internal controls is really the backbone of every compliance program? I love that you said that, Tom. So let me back up for a second. The legal division at Pfizer, first of all, if you look at the pie of what Pfizer spends, the biggest chunk is in legal fees, right? It just did. We would joke that Pfizer was the biggest law firm in the entire world because of the amount that they had to spend on legal fees, whether it's patents, whether it's settlements or whatnot. And I remember the legal division was on the 18th and 19th floor of Midtown Manhattan. 
And you would never go up there. But the times you did have to go up there to talk about a reserve or whatnot, the elevator would open to be red carpets and everybody would have their own admin. And it was like, what kind of world is this? But they would never come off that floor, right? No offense to you, Thomas. They just stayed up there. And it only went to them when there was a problem. Then when things started going south a little bit with compliance controls, we realized legal needs to be a part of this. So what we ended up doing is we made legal a part of the leadership teams of all of the divisions within Pfizer. So within a legal a leadership team of, let's say, manufacturing, you would have a procurement lead, you'd have a finance lead, you'd have a quality lead. And guess what? Now there was a legal person that would be part of that leadership team. And, in, and encompassing that was compliance and controls. So that's how we dragged them off the 18th floor into the leadership team meetings and uh, as part of the, uh, the construct of Pfizer. And, that, and that, that's how we did it. So Frank, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I have two special bonus questions. Uh-oh. Number one, why is R2-D2 in your background? That is a great question. I'm a huge fan of, of Star Wars. When someone asked that interview question, dead or alive character that you'd want to meet, Yoda is actually that character. So I've always been a big fan of Star Wars, continue to be a big fan. It's my my dorky life there. So that, that is why R2-D2 sets there. And if I move my head a little bit, you can see the other two types of characters, the, the BB-8 there, as well as the there's the uh, one of the uh, Falcons there that, from Star Wars. <laughs> and the Miami Dolphins helmet. I've been a Dolphin fan since what we call the Killer Bees, so I know I'm dating myself. Mm-hmm. And when they had that great defense and Dan Marino. And I, it's one of those things, being the stubborn guy that I am, I have to stick with them. And I've loved them since the Killer Bees. This face that you see in front of you, it may be 52, but it looks a lot older because of the Miami Dolphins. I'm hoping this is the year. Last year, last week was amazing, that 70-point game. But I'm sticking with them. <laughs> oh, look at you. And you got an old-school Pats hat up there. I love it. Oh, and an old Oilers one. Man, look at that. Yeah, my Miami Dolphins. And there's the Stormtrooper. Yeah. And there's R2-D2. Fantastic. Uh, And there's the Millennium Falcon. I love it. I love it. Uh, All right. We have that in common. Yeah. So Can I ask if you're watching the Star Wars channel, the the new offshoots, the Obi-Wan and the Sukas? I not only watch them, I podcast on them. That's great. Yeah. um, We're just finishing up Mandalorian Season 3 on a podcast called Popcorn and Compliance, and we're going to sock up. Sign me up. you got to yeah. send me the link. I love it. it. <laughs> yeah, we've done every Star Wars movie. I've done all the series. I also am a Star Trek fan, and I'm often asked, how can you be both? And I'll just chastise no, no, no. anyone who claims you can't be both. I hope it's the old Star Trek. I hope it's the classic. Star Trek, the original series. There you go. But my, my football helmet collection, I've got a lot of autographs. Helmets I bought, but I have one that was autographed by a Miami Dolphin named Mark Dennard. And Dennard joined the Dolphins in 79, and he played through the early part or through Marino's career. And he was, I'm a recovering trial lawyer, and he was the first guy I won a million dollars for in a court case. So I got him to sign my helmet for me. So I even have a Miami Dolphins helmet, but it's out in my gym. Nice. Well, Tom, I got to ask you one question now. Your favorite Star Wars movie and your least favorite, and why? 
what you and I would call the first, which, yeah. Uh, and my least favorite, the prequels. God, yeah. what? And Jar Binks, Jesus. Uh, but um, I, I can't, I, we, you are, we're violently aligned that way. And I, I, I even, you can see I have my Ewok village up there. I totally agree with you on that. We're aligned. And I'd love to participate in that podcast or at least listen to it. Okay, I'll uh, definitely send you the link for that. But before we leave, how about you tell our audience where they can uh, find out more about you, your consulting practice, and how to get in touch with you? Thanks, Tom, and I appreciate the time, and it was a lot of fun, and hoping forward to, uh, to your, uh, your listeners. I can be reached at frank at asianadvisory.com. That's A-T-I-O-N advisory, or www.asianadvisorygroup.com, or asianadvisory.com. I'm happy to talk anything compliance or help help anyone that needs it. Frank, this was a ton of fun and I hope we can continue this conversation. I can't, and I can't wait to hear about the podcast with Star Wars and compliance. I just, in my mind, I'm going to be thinking all day of how those two mesh. I even did the full Star Trek, the original series, trekking through compliance, the full 79 episodes. I love it. That's awesome. All right, Frank, thanks again. Take care. Thank you for your time, Tom. Appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. We've been on air since 2012. We're looking forward to continuing visiting with you on a variety of topics, obviously the FCPA, compliance and ethics, as well as other matters which will interest the compliance professional. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are found. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.